Good afternoon, everyone. I am Stephen Drew from the Architecture Social, and I am joined here by a by a fantastic guest, someone that I've had the pleasure of working with in a professional capacity, and I've learned from actually in the process. So, Dominic Haley from Clara Collins, it is a pleasure for you to be here with you, with me. How are you? Are you all right? <laughs> Morning, Stephen, or afternoon, or whatever time of day it is, everyone. I, I'm well, <laughs> thank you. Still working from home in these rather interesting times. Um, but yeah, thank you for the very kind introduction. I'm, I'm glad to have sowed the seeds of some ideas in your brain, Stephen. Absolutely. And so we can we can fr- frame it for everyone how we met, actually. So I've actually I've worked with Colado Collins on recruitment over the years, and we had the pleasure of speaking because you were looking for someone to join your team at the time, which was actually because uh, you've done some fantastic projects in terms of elderly living or retirement communities. And we had a bit of a giggle before when you give me the brief and you were like, look, Steve, I'm not looking for people who are going to be, you know, thinking that elderly living is beige walls and chairs stacked <laughs> into in a room with several people absolutely bored out of their brains there's much much more to that it's an exciting opportunity for the person that understands it and our conversation grew from there because it is an interesting sector now for anyone that is not familiar with the work that you've you've done should we briefly talk about what elderly living is and maybe then we can talk about how you you uh got into the sector and maybe a little bit about your background so first of all for anyone that's uh thinking that retirement communities are beige walls can you can you give the the correct um, well i think part of the problem part of the issue perhaps Stephen, is that there are many retirement communities still being completed that that are beige walls. Um, mm. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we had that long conversation around finding the right person to work with, um, whenever it was a year, 18 months ago now, was that there is this, this broad understanding or this broad problem, certainly in the UK, of how we consider housing for older people. You take mm. the idea of home, which is great. Everyone likes home. And you can take the idea of care and everyone likes to feel cared for or, or to give care to people. If you put care and hope together, getting care home, then your mental picture obviously becomes, I would say, probably quite a negative one, given the state of, of care homes and care home design in the UK, you know, institutional handrails on walls, all that sort of thing. So when, when we talk about housing for older people, which has overlaid on it an element of care, then it's very easy to fall back into the, the trope, if you like, the assumption that this is going to be another one of those slightly dull places which has a big lounge somewhere with a view of some trees and all older people like to do is to sit down and stare out the window and, you know, reflect on their past. Now, we are all future old people. And I cannot imagine anything worse for my future than spending my autumn years staring at leaves falling and, and reflecting on my past. And I think if you if you look around now, you know, the, the generation that is becoming older people are the baby boomers, uh, a generation accustomed mm-hmm. to choice, to diversity, you know, the, the first real generation of consumers. And so what we bring forward now for older people has to take them into account and their future needs and their considerations. So 
when choosing a person, to go back to the, the origin of your question, it was about finding someone that was enthusiastic about the prospect of effectively coming up with new, almost experimental ways of arranging buildings, apartment buildings, to, to provide communities for a specific group of people. Now, age should be a second filter laid over the top of that. Um, as you mentioned, um, you did rather fit three questions into one there. I so did. I'll try and that was really unfair. Three. So I'll, I'll peel them back. I know. I'm <laughs> sorry. I said it, I said it would be an easy time. And then, and I, and, and the script of what I said before about we do it. So we're, we're thinking on our feet, but, uh, it's yes, fine. the set. <laughs> it's fine. I was, I was going to then backtrack to, yes, how I became involved in all of this. Um, right back from my history, you know, I trained as an architect, um, starting in 1996, showing my age now. I've just had my 44th birthday. Um, Age is an important thing to recognise, even if we don't sort of use it as the primary criteria. So here I am at 44. Um, And yes, in 96, I started training and, to be honest, lost interest in architecture a little bit. Mm. And so in the early sort of 2000, 2001 period, I went to the London School of Economics and did a master's degree there called City Design and Social Science. That that was quite interesting coming into it as an architect where you're trained to very much focus on, you know, a building, a design solution, form, beauty, aesthetics, a bit of practicality. And this, this LSE course was, was part of their sort of emerging cities program, which involved all disciplines, sociologists, lawyers, transport planners, architects, urban designers, multidisciplinary teams looking at the issues of of urbanism and and changing urban forms from as many perspectives as possible. Now, then I ended up working back in architecture because ultimately, you know, a year studying a master's at the LSE bankrupts you if you're not careful. So I had to get a job and and through a series of, of jobs fell into actually realizing that the jobs that I'd completed that were quite successful tended to be schemes for older people. So right. I kind of fell into it a bit by chance. I never set out so I never predicted I'm going to be a specialist in this sector I still don't really consider myself a specialist I just consider myself a thinker if you like and that then can carry through into design so by the time I joined Gallardo Collins in 2015 and I was just recruited to deliver a particular building not particularly to to focus on housing for older people I had actually completed three buildings uh, one in Shepherd's Bush um, a nice big arms house in Sydenham Hill uh, and then another one over in Newham which were age designated accommodation um, and indeed the project I was brought on to deliver at Gallardo Collins was the Lansby in Stanmore which we'll come on to I'm sure a bit later on mm which again was apartments for older people with amenities uh, and the client on that project was very much sort of keen on bringing this new model of later living as it was back in 2015. I think we've been talking about it for five years now. We're still calling it a kind of a new model and and more and more people are doing it, but but they were interested in bringing that forward and and just through the design process and working with them, um, I just became more and more interested in in the issues around the sector. Hmm. From there... I mean, you know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit now, but, you know, we attended, myself and some colleagues, a number of conferences around the subject. There have been some very big ones, Property Week, LD Events, you know, Housing Lynn do one, Arco do a big conference every year. There's a plethora, you know, four or five, maybe that's not a plethora, but a lot of, of conferences out there. And every one that we went along to, there was something missing. And that was 
pretty much anybody over the age of 65. Everybody sat there talking about what a great real estate opportunity this was. You know, these are the last generations with property wealth and we can unlock that. We can help them downsize. We can call it right sizing. You know, what, what a great demographic with an aging population to tap into. But the older person was always them, was always the other, was always somewhere else and never in the room. Um, so we ultimately decided to, to put together a, a thought piece on the sector, which was, which became, if you like, the mm. Just Living book, um, and brought on board a, a very talented and very intelligent young lady called Carly Dixon who was a fellow of the MIT Age Lab, a young architect herself, and, and very, very interested in all the subjects around housing for older people and indeed housing for anybody that didn't sort of suit the norms in terms of accessibility, impaired vision, cognitive impairment, uh, any number of things. So we set out really to find the voice of the current generation of older people and the future generations by talking to our, our peers and colleagues and then really kind of compare that to how the industry was approaching the sector uh, and encapsulate that in a in a moment in the book, which um, has really led on to great things because the more we sort of put that message out there, talk to people, listen to people, understand people, provide choice for people, the more we're coming across people becoming involved in the sector or who have been involved in the sector for a long time mm. who – always had those things in their mind but never had the opportunity or never had a medium to, to get it out there and to really discuss it so we've really unlocked this conversation I think for a lot of people around what aging is how we think about aging you know what ageism is and how prevalent it is actually in our media um, and how we address that and how we think about communities for the future always going that, back to that point you know what is an old person it's us in the future. It's someone who's lived life and is unique and doesn't get to 65 and fall off an aging cliff and receive, you know, a sign outside their front gate that says elderly person, please be quiet and drive slowly. <laughs> you know, we're not, we're not like that when we age. Um, or we shouldn't be, but we seem to be designing for it for some I reason. Love it. I think I think you've 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 done my um my my free questions very good justice there and I absolutely what I'll do at the end of this by the way is I'm going to link for everyone that's listening the Landsby project which you mentioned also to the Cladder Collins publication Just Living and also I'm going to link to your the article you did in Guild Living and what I quite liked about there is that you talked about your your analogy of the punk rock uh, Jody in the future which I Absolutely. thought was a, it was amazing because I always say this to us with because um, I actually I've always loved computer games I've always loved building computers and while, when I, while I was studying architecture I would play video games and it's always been that fun thing and I remember mm. saying to my friends I was like look when I go to an old person's home I'm going to plug me into World of Warcraft plug, mm. plug me into the mm. mainframe so I'm not going to sit in, in terms of the analogy before of in that room with the chairs. And, and I love what you're talking about because at first, I think if you're being, it's a bit like what's been drilled into our brains from before. And that's where, when we had the brief at first, I remember briefing my team about, look, we've got, we've got, 
Dominic's team are Carter Collins. We need to find someone who's enthusiastic about LD living and, 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 mm. uh, and doing those retirement communities, doing these interesting projects. And what's interesting is that, as you said, you've almost got to reprogram people's connotations. And it, at first it was like, uh oh, this is going to be difficult because it's like, how are we going to get people interested in doing these old fashioned, you know, or these, or, or, or maybe the buildings that we've been used to before. But the point is of what you're saying is that there's a massive opportunity to change this year it's not like it's like these almost prison cells or this room where you go from one to the other you're on about these awesome opportunities so in the future it could be like i don't know the youtube studio there or it could be the (laughs) you know the gaming area or as you said like the studio area where people can record and play instruments Mm. and and the you have these fantastic spaces that actually you're solving a problem for me in the future because i'm like don't take me to the home don't take me i don't want to go in the chair and what you're on about is something which is like oh do you know what that is something i'm looking forward to nice views nice nice rooms nice functions maybe a little cinema who knows i mean i'm kind of designing a brief for you here but the point is it's not here's the sitting room oh no just that size No, you're you're absolutely right, and um, you know you're right to raise your own interests in this because they are as relevant as anybody else's interests. Um, you know your point about video games. I can imagine maybe you will be sitting in that room, but you won't be staring at the trees. <laughs> You'll have an Oculus VR headset on and something in each hand, and you will be battling <laughs> away somewhere in a virtual realm. And what's going to be important to the retirement option that you move into is going to be a high speed internet connection. And you almost won't care about anything else. And that's fine. You know, that's just something else to build into the brief. I think, you know, you mentioned the Guild article and the analogy I used there was, what does Patty Smith want? Mm. I mean, Patty Smith does not want to move into a retirement community. That's day one, you know, fact one. However, there are people like her and, and maybe because I'm an architect and then, you know, the friends that I have tend to be, if you like, more left leaning. Um, mm. guardian reading type. So I, I know a number of people in their 70s and early 80s that are still, you know, very militant, strong, with strongly held beliefs, you know, very, very strong individuals that express what they want, what they're interested in and what they're not interested in very, very clearly. Um, we know that for the current retirement opportunity, it's only of interest to about 10% of the demographic that is, you know, available to move into it because of what it is. And absolutely, it, it's going to change. We need to think about what the future is. Um, you mentioned, you know, the nice amenities, the bar, the restaurant, you know, the library that we put in. But if we do them too nicely, then a lot of people might not want to use them because they feel they have to dress up to use them. Oh, okay. If we've got a really nice restaurant, and this is something I mentioned in the Guild article, when I'm older, I might want to wander around in a T-shirt from a punk rock band. I'm not a punk rocker particularly, but as an example, you know, with something rude on the front Mm. or, or something at least a little bit controversial. And I want to feel comfortable in my home or wandering around whatever I'm paying a service charge for in, in whatever I'm wearing um, and not feel like I need to iron my shirt, um, make sure I'm wearing a sports blazer, you know, with polished buttons and all that sort of thing. Um, 
going back, I think, to why this sector is so stimulating for architects, if I may revert to the start of your long-winded question yet again, Stephen. <laughs> oh, no, um, I'm never going to live that down. Well, Sorry. Listen, listen, I'm just going to get used to the way that you formulate questions um, with several layers. It's like a tiramisu of questions. But <laughs> the great thing about this sector for architects is that when clients come to you with a site – their intention is not to raise land value. Their intention is not to flip it with planning, usually. Mm. But their intention is, as developer operators, to get in consent for a building, build it out, and then operate it for 50-plus years. Now, obviously, 50-plus years, you have to think about, you know, as I said, I'm 44. I'll be 94, perhaps, when the Lansby in Stanmore becomes comes to the end of its useful life. Um, will it be suitable for me in 30 years' time, probably not. But will something else come along? Possibly. But as an architect, I got to design that building, build that building, and now I get to watch it in operation and continue to work with that client doing more buildings. I think that was one of the things when when you helped us find the right person, you know, the, the real carrot uh, dangling to dangle in front of people was not that um, it wasn't beige care homes. It was that you get to design and build a building that is thoughtful about making a place for people to live, not just stack flats up as densely as possible, although there's an element of that, but but to actually put something together that when someone walks through the front door, they look around and they breathe in and they feel a sense of, of if not belonging, then at least satisfaction that here is a good building. It's a great way to do good buildings, um, which you don't get if you work in the standard residential sector. I mean, even, you know, build to rent when it first came along as PRS or whatever we were calling it. Um, well, that's a subcategory, I suppose. But, you know, we had huge super lobbies and amenities mm. everywhere. It turned out they weren't viable. They, they couldn't make them stack up. So that got reduced. But in retirement living, because of the way they operate the financials, um, they can support more amenities and better quality amenities. And yes, why not a recording studio? Why not a video games room or several video games rooms? You know, why not a, a weekly LAN party? Although that probably is even before our time when everyone was connecting their computers together with uh, Ethernet cables and sitting in someone's basement. But all of those things will be relevant and needed and enjoyable to our generation. And, you know, the generation that comes after us, maybe not my children, but the children of friends who are in their teens and 20s that have no consideration of ageing at the moment, have a whole different set of requirements again that we need to future-proof for. Mm. It's. Uh, it, I think, look, you've done – that's been a fantastic – I think overview of what you do and and put it this way. I want to make sure I'm in the same retirement community as you, especially after that one. I'm going to be following you around. I'll be like, Dominic, remember we go way back. I need, you, you need to put in a good word for me so I can get a little discount. But I, I loved your analogy of, because it's true. You almost like with the Ritz, it's that balance between you want it to be homely and approachable, but special. Mm. And that's the, and that's the kind of vibe I get. And, um, having read, uh, and especially, I mean, the Gill Living article is very good. And I've, 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 I haven't read at all 150 pages of your you amazing, one amazing. Of many, one of many um, who have picked it up. And it's not supposed to be read cover to cover, particularly. No, but it's, it's a, it's like a really fantastic guide. And like what I did look through and what I did enjoy was actually the latter bits where we talked about designing for the mind. And obviously <laughs> there's also an art form because 
because what you're on about is the rooms, the functions to stimulate conversation, to stimulate people together, to do all this stuff. But then there is that behind the scenes art of and all the kind of things that you've learned over architecture as well that you can almost do like these, I, um, these, these lessons, these things you picked up, which are almost mm. subliminal, that it just makes the, the experience flow. And it's kind of, you. and then we're almost bleeding into like mental health and stimulating people just to kind of, of keep, we are. Keep, keep, the, keep the mind jogging. Absolutely. And, you know, the amount that I've learned in the past three years about the subject, you know, particularly around, as you say, mental health, um, cognitive decline, you know, what it is to live with dementia and how you need to design for that. The importance of nature and a connection with the outdoors, all of these things are so critical. And there are a, a larger number of operators now coming forward, really putting well-being at the heart of their agenda for new developments. You know, almost, you know, tier one, the first thing that on their brief is well-being, right? How do we encapsulate that in a building and deliver it? I'm just going to rewind to correct you. And you did very briefly mention the book as a guide. And we're very clear that it's not a guide, mm. um, simply because there are so many different recommendations on good practice out there um, that we would never sort of sanction one as you know the right answer. Um, it's mm. very difficult and, and it's very difficult to navigate quite often what the right things are to do. Um, ultimately, you have to fight for the simple things that, that are just basics of good design. We should be designing every building for regardless of age in the same way. You know, we, we have long conversations about how to combat loneliness for, you know, people living on their own in a one bed apartment in our buildings. How do we design the balconies so they can overlook each other? So that if someone is on their balcony and they see their neighbor, they can give them away. How do you build sociability into an efficient building that effectively is a lot of outward looking flats? How do you configure the building? Now, there is another generation also that suffers from extreme loneliness. And it's a generation between about the ages of 20 and 30. There's some very interesting models coming forward, maybe not delivered in the UK yet, but there are some abroad in mainland Europe and Scandinavia and in the Far East, particularly in Singapore, for, for intergenerational living and actually looking more broadly than just age-designated housing as as almost sort of not even life stage and not mental health, but, you know, housing for a person at a particular life stage might not be housing for a person at a particular age. What happens if we mix up lonely 20, 20 to 30-year-olds and, and lonely octogenarians? You know, is there a way you can do a building? And, and there's a... Um, an operator called the Cohab with a K, Justin Shi, who's been trying to put this model together for a very long time. And it's difficult because it's planning use classes and all sorts of restrictions. But the idea of, of mixing generations goes back to the multi-generational family, which we've moved away from in the UK over the last 70 years. You know, granny doesn't live in a flat in the basement anymore. If you're lucky, you know, she might live around the corner, but we are geographically dispersed now, um, just within the mm. generations of our own family. Um, so we need to get a bit more of that intergenerational action going to start addressing, I think, more of the fundamental problems of of modern society than just aging. Aging mm. happens to highlight it because you stop working and you realize how much of our life is built around work, our career, our, our professional identity. When that disappears, there's obviously a sense of loss. Um, 
which has to be dealt with. Equally, people in their 20s to 30s are developing that career and beginning to understand what it means. I would have really appreciated some sage advice between the age of 20 and 30 to say, you know, what are you good at? What do you like doing? Is this really the right path for you? You know, I was flattered. I tried to get out of architecture. Here I am, an architect 20 years mm. later. Um, it happens. I think my point, I think more broadly being that a wider look at how we do housing and taking the age designation out of it would be great, but it's our hands are tied by the planning system, by use classes, by investors and their understanding of their inputs and outputs and, and who they're investing in. So in the meantime, we have to make sure that any fully age designated proposition doesn't become a ghetto, you know, mm. an age ghetto full of only older people. Even, even people in their seventies and eighties talk about older people as someone else. Yeah. You know, them. Um, then, you know, people are really old. There's, there's 85 year olds who talk about their neighbor who's 95 as the old person next door. You know, it's, it's someone else. It's always someone else. And why not? Let's, let's live in a world where we don't define ourselves as old, young, middle aged. Let's just live in a world where we do what we do and try and get the best life possible out of it. Easy to yeah. say, I suppose, when we're. You know, wealthy middle class white men sitting doing a podcast. Not so easy for many others, but you know, there are there are arms houses out there. There are organisations, charitable organisations, that are now revisiting their offer for older people um, and reviewing twenty, thirty, forty year old building stock and realising that what we thought in the late seventies, early eighties is just not appropriate anymore. Well, don't well, don't worry, Dominic. My 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 grand and my auntie Wendy listen to this, so we're hitting all we're hitting all the oh, demographics. That's great. How how may I dare I ask how old they are and what their living situation is? Oh, do you know what? If I say Auntie Wendy's age on this podcast, she's not oh going to listen to it again, Dom. So Fair I don't enough. know. Auntie Wendy, don't know. We'll, my, we'll keep you. <laughs> but my grand my grand's close to um. So I think she's like eighty seven, eighty eight. Just mm-hmm. young. Uh, yeah, still a young, still a young and but uh, you know, for growing up for life, all the stuff you're talking about now, um, it uh, definitely strikes a chord. And and what I love is, for anyone that's listening, we will, we will, I will put in the podcast link. I will put um, the link to the publication, the articles we talked about. Oh, let's touch upon because uh, I've done this interview in the reverse order, but actually I think it's better because <laughs> what I've enjoyed is your passion and it's clear because as you said, maybe what you've done is a publication, not a guide. Uh, however, I think it's um, it's fantastic, and that's why I almost uh, call it a guy. Well, that's why I did call it a guy because I just think it's great. But of course, it is a publication. But what I love is that you've clearly it's it's something that you've got your teeth into. It's something that you you're you're passionate about, and you touch briefly upon the the time period when you kind of fell out of love with architecture. Hmm. And I'm sure that a lot of people have been in that position as well. And as because this podcast, I mean, it, it, there are people in industry now, but there's a lot of people studying architecture as well. And what would be great, Dominic, is to kind of share your journey a little bit there, because it's great you've got to something that you're interested in now, but there was that point in time, right, where you were just like, I'm not feeling it. I'm not mm-hmm. interested. So maybe we can wind the clock back then. And, and if you're if you're kind enough to share a bit of light on that, I think it could be quite inspirational for any students listening. Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's not dead air, people. I'm thinking. Um, <laughs> wow. All right. So 
of course I have a thought on this. Uh, architectural education, I think, is, is an interesting one. You know, it, mm. it comes in three parts in the UK. And I think probably rightly so. It, it's almost like the development of language and, you know, architects will go on about architecture as a language and be highfalutin about it. I, I think I have my feet probably more firmly on the ground than my head in the clouds about that. But <laughs> effectively, your, your first degree, your part one, um, the bachelor's is, it's almost like learning to make the sounds and the basic words in that language, the principles of design. Um, your part two is then sort of forming those, those sounds words into coherent sentences and and having a more rounded design and then your part three is really kind of taking those sentences out into the world and seeing if they stand up to scrutiny and particularly on the legal and contractual matters maybe i'm sort of extending the analogy too far but but in all of that effectively we are taught poetry beauty of architecture you know form function um, commodity firmness delight you know my favorite three vitruvian the only three vitruvian principles someone will probably correct me in comments to this i'm sure there's more to it but we are educated to do fantastic projects we do art galleries we do private houses for you know with a very loose brief for clients we we get to explore and enjoy architecture as students which is great but then when we come out, certainly of part one and quite often out of part two as well, we are pretty useless to the architecture industry. No offence. I was. And the only way then you can become more useful is through experience, is through working. But, you know, you come in effectively, you know, we don't like to do free internships. We we never did in my generation. And I wish we didn't now. But you, you come in with a low level of experience, you know, strong thoughts and dreams quite often from your education and you will have to spend years a number of years it might only be a couple or it might be four or five or ten doing boring stuff you know mm. what's this really boring dial task oh i've got to put together an indesign document i've got to do a, an excel spreadsheet give it to the part one give it to the part two you know you're, you're a, a tool and in doing all that boring stuff it's very easy to become disenfranchised to say this is what i was taught this is what i was going to be thinking or what i thought i was going to be thinking this is what i'm doing uh you know guys sort of looking around is this right it's it took me you know 15 years to actually get in the driving seat on a project and you know i value all of those 15 years even if i didn't enjoy all of them i mean my, my journey to qualification was long as i said the part one uh, the great thing about i did my part one at the university of bath which um, at the time i would recommend i don't know if the course is still as good but it balances technical with design you know you work in conjunction with engineers that the architecture building itself was a bespoke design by Allison and Peter Smithson, you know, brutalist, famous for brutalism, mm. but actually designed in a way so that every element internally and how it was fitted together was expressed. It was a teaching tool. You could see lintels over doors, you know, you could see how screws and door frames were fixed together, how stairs worked inside buildings. And it, and it you know, was a great place to, to learn. Um, and I finished that four-year course having done uh, a sort of sandwich of six months here or there of working. Uh, and I did do really, you know, I was lucky even to do, you know, work on a project that I got to go and visit where it happened. But I did do very small scale and dull stuff. I think I spent a lot of time because it was early days with CAD, you know, scratching away at drawings with a razor blade back in those days of drawing boards, um, showing my age again. 
And when I finished my part one, I went to work for a fairly large company for a year based in Bristol. And again, being a useless part one, I was put on fairly dull tasks. And that after that year, I was just like, you know, screw this. I suppose I'm, that's about as colourful as my language is allowed to get on this <laughs> podcast. But uh, yeah, screw this. I'm interested in bigger things, which is when I went to the LSE. Um, after that, I didn't do my part two until 2010. So well, I spent okay. 10 years working as an architect. Again, lucky enough to be working on projects that got delivered. Um, and, you know, that's that's what everyone wants, isn't it, to deliver a project. But, but from that, I thought I'm actually reasonably good at this and I should probably finish the qualification. So I did the part two as the office-based exam with Oxford Brookes University. So you continue to work and you do your design projects over two years in the meantime. One, it's significantly cheaper than going to university full-time. And two, you can carry on working. So in my case, you know, I think I just moved into a little house with my wife. You know, we had our first mortgage. I wasn't about to take two years as a student and not bring anything into the household. Mm. So it was a really great way of doing it. And then part three um, I did at London Metropolitan University with the great Gordon Murray, who's such a character. And I really enjoyed that. And, you know, by the time I did that, I'd been working for 13 years and it was as easy and natural as breathing. I would recommend to students out there, if you can, if it's possible, as your first couple of jobs, find somewhere in a small practice. You will hear more, you will do more, you'll be involved in more. You know, it's tempting to go and say, I'd really like to work for Zaha, Allies and Morrison, you know, one of the big names that you've probably used as precedents in your, in your studies. Um, the danger is you become a bit of a cubicle drone. You will end up doing 10 years of door schedules if you're not careful. Um, small practice obviously gives you a chance to be more hands-on throughout. And it was through that really that then I started working on housing for older people, both with um, Look Ahead Housing and with Hammersmith United Charities for a very small practice of, of two older gentlemen uh, probably they were in their mid-50s, early 60s at the time, myself, and then a, an office manager. So, you know, delivering 8, 10, 15 million pounds. So not huge, but big enough projects that obviously it made them reasonably wealthy and it gave me a huge amount of experience. Um, so, yes, work in small practices, ideally with some old hands who who are philosophical about things and who never panic. We tend to get in a bit of a panic quite a lot in architecture. Whenever we get an angry email from someone and, you know, we're, we're warned about litigation and the dangers of specifying anything all the time. So keeping a calm head on those shoulders, I think, is really important in navigating complex, complex projects or even simple projects. But start with yeah. the simple stuff. It's easier. I think I think that's uh, sound advice, and uh, I kind of echo the the same the sentiment. Oh, I've said especially because it's difficult looking for a job right now, especially mm. during this current pandemic. That actually, the more likely you are to find opportunities, especially if you're a graduate or anyone entering the industry, is to look off the beaten path, look at maybe local architectural practices, maybe practices which do not have have as you said as high a profile as Alison mm. Morrison, but they can offer you a lot of um, benefits. Yeah, great, uh, Alison. Morrison, great company, but the analogy that you've quite rightly said is that smaller practice, you're you're a key part of the team. You're gonna you're gonna be involved in stuff, and there's nowhere to hide there. You can't. You're mm. not doing door schedules on a massive airport, or, and you know you're doing something different. But uh, I think, look, that's a great overview, and and what is is tying in quite nicely is that the next part on because when what we joked about a little bit before is you never predicted 
you would <laughs> and now you're engrossed in the subject and clearly you're making a difference, which is great. Mm. But you never thought you were going to be doing elderly living or, or you know, I, I imagine you never thought you would publish just living no. about it. Exactly. So what, what would be great to know how, um, cause you was the first project that you ever did, uh, in this sector. Was that the lands beam? Um, so, well, the first, yeah, the first private C2 use class apartment building with amenities. Yes, was the Lansby. Um, mm. So in this sector, if we're looking at, yes, sort of for-profit developer operator retirement living. Yes, absolutely. I mean, as I said, previous projects, but for arms house charities or, or other non-profit organizations. Yeah. And it was, it was a giant learning process for a number of reasons. Um, but had a lot of similar drivers to a standard residential project. You know, um, one still has to be efficient. You know, one can have larger apartments and sort of be a little bit more fast and loose with net to gross, but not very much because there are still investors behind these projects. Um, but in terms of, yeah, I mean, I, I think of myself as a, as a free thinker as not maybe not quite a Renaissance man. I, almost feel like you know i i've got this sounds a bit funny doesn't it i've got 10 years of this i think and unless then we really do refresh how we are approaching housing for older people i'll be thinking about my next book mm. um you know what will be the next topic i mean and, and even just living you know the fundamental argument of the book is that Age-designated housing can be great, sure, and may be needed. But what we should really be doing is good quality, accessible, general needs housing, irrespective of age. The problem, I think, is that, you know, certainly in the UK, um, development is private sector driven, mostly for profit, understandably, I think. And, you know, as a result, only certain things get built and they get built to a price and they get built for a reason. And, you know, house builders can be, have a very different approach to retirement living operators quite often. And I'm just pulling out my notes. I was at a webinar this morning arranged by Hawley called oh, Design okay. Unleashed. Um, we work a lot with Hawley, you know, standard plug. There you go. Um, hey. Anyway, the, the, they had Guy Flintoff, the planning director from Re- Retirement Villages Group, doing a little piece about, you know, where they are, where they sit. They were bought by AXA in 2017, you know, when all the big funds stepped in, legal and general, set up Guild Living with Marquesian partners. Um, AXA took on um, RVG. There's a couple of others out there. You know, Goldman Sachs took on Riverstone Living, completely different tier. But they're all saying, you know, we've got billions of pounds to spend in this sector over the next 10 years. We want to deliver 250 plus homes a year. Great. But what they can do, which is different to where effectively a house builder would work, is that they are not design, construct and walk away. They're design, construct and operate, as I said before. Mm. What that gives them is is the opportunity to look at things like particularly energy performance and sustainability in a completely different way to a house builder. So their long-term investment in low carbon will pay back over 20 years. Whereas a house builder would not go for a, you know, a very low carbon development because he'd either have to then sell it at a premium, you know, or he wouldn't be the one reaping the, the benefits of it in 20 years time through reduced energy costs or reduced carbon offset payments or, or whatever. But if you're owning 200 homes, 
and sort of getting selling them on leaseholds or, or rental tenures, then you you and your customers can reap the benefits of being carbon neutral. And it it does take twenty years to to cut the cost from you know one point five million pounds to six hundred thousand pounds, which may not seem like a lot. Well, it seems like a lot to you and I, I'm sure, but you know, to uh, an investor, but it's backed up by then an extremely sustainable building with low embodied energy, high performance, and their running costs and their maintenance costs are going to be lower over that time as well. So that's another thing that's that's great about at least this sector now. It's got the money behind it. Is it? It's a longer term investment prospect, and I'm interested mm. to see how that plays out and whether that is genuine. Or whether that's another one of these things we say to make profiting from older people more, more acceptable. There is a slight sort of distasteful air to the way sometimes that the retirement living operators profit. And I don't think there should be, you know, I, I think, you know, I don't know if you've heard about event fees or exit fees and if you know what they are, Stephen, but, no. um, they rely rather cynically on something called churn. So right. effectively, you know, money money is made. Uh, uh, an operator can, when when somebody leaves, <laughs> sorry to sound so confused about this, I want to set, set each step up in the right order so that it doesn't sound mm-hmm. completely unreasonable. Somebody buys an apartment in, in a retirement offer, uh, and at the time they, they agree when they're buying it that when they move out, under whatever circumstances, and we'll come to the circumstances, and the apartment is resold, a proportion of the resale value of that apartment goes back to the owner-operator developer. Developer. So that that's the event fee or the exit fee. When you leave the building, a proportion of the resale value, so it's not out of your pocket so much of out of the inheritance pocket, if you like, the capital pocket of your future generation. So, of course, when you leave, you are either dead frankly, or have got to the point where if you're living with dementia, it is has got to the extent that you can no longer live in an apartment independently and you need higher care environments, you know, or or you have another reason you're you're sick of it and you want to move on from from age designated accommodation. But churn is obviously the rate at which people move out. So a higher rate of churn will generate a higher set of exit fees. But mm. that means, you know, a lot of churn is about people dying. So we're building building for older people, but in order to make them stack up viably, we have to make sure that a lot of them die. But <laughs> and this is where it gets onto very tentative and very sensitive ground here. Um, and this is not a critique of it. You know, the, the, the message behind a good retirement living offer is that it keeps you healthier and alive for longer and reduces, you know, your poor quality later life and, and reduces medical bills, if you like. So there are now operators out there that are looking to kind of reduce their reliance on churn and find other ways to, to sort of make their, their investors who, who certainly with the big investors have more patient capital, make them realize that there's a good way of doing this and a not so good way of doing this. But it's another one of those sort of facets of this sector that's, that's really interesting and almost sort of dissonant with the message. Um, which is something we again try to tackle or, or begin to understand in the book. 
but present as neutrally as possible. You know, my personal opinion on how event fees work and are structured is very different, perhaps, to what I would express as a professional, shall we say. Yeah, it's it's very insightful. And I've kind of learned a lot through uh, talking with you and working with you in the process <laughs> as well. And I think that it uh, what you what you do do, and, and in there, when you especially talk into opportunities and developers, I mean, this is actually a sector which has been around for a while, but I think now we're all starting to take it seriously. And when you're talking about that, it actually offers a solution to it, it, it improves better lives but actually there's a commercial opportunity there which is which is definitely of interest and i mean that's why in one of the sense um and it's a testament to yourself and to Colorado collins especially right now during the pandemic it's a tricky time for everyone i think it's a testament that you are busy you are doing well and you have spread the word of of this emerging sector, uh, or let me rephrase that. The sector has always been there, but maybe pulling everything up, bringing attention to it and through doing good design quality and do, doing these projects and shining a light onto it, then we're addressing it. But as, as you kind of highlighted there, actually identifying the commerciality of it. Is good because the, the sad fact of life sometimes is that, you know, for businesses to work and to operate, there needs to be a return on the investment. And the point that you're highlighting there, that it, it is. Mm. But look, I think that's really helpful. What I'd like to say though, while we're here is, at Colorado Collins, because pro- maybe some people don't under- um, are not as familiar with it, but you're part of the senior team uh, at mm. Colorado Collins, cool and sense. there's a lot of different sectors that you guys do. And I mean, I'm I, I'm biased. I've known you for years. I think it's mm. a great company to work for, and that you touched upon briefly. Um, it's good to you learn in a smaller architectural practice. Mm. I wouldn't say you're that small, but you kind of, you have that halfway house between it's, it's a successful commercial practice. I mean, you're talking now, you're trying to, you, you're going to see Holy, mm. you're talking about, uh, the commercial viability of this sector and, and you're improving the design, but you kind of almost like, you're like the best of both worlds as in you're still small enough that people can get stuck into a project but you're not huge where there's the red tape and the kind of the you can't do stuff so i mean is it worth setting the scene for um one or two minutes about Colorado collins at the moment the sectors that you do and the size absolutely i'd be be delighted to obviously um yes i mean the practice has been around for 18 19 years now i think um founded by Roy Collado and John Collins as they came out of Hamilton's back in the day um, it's always been as you say a, a sort of fairly commercially sharp practice um, and also you know there's always been a focus on efficient buildings and good quality design wherever possible I think for a long time you know we had a reputation for securing good planning consents and then more recently we've developed that reputation into securing good planning consents and being able to construct them you know into the final article uh, mm. yeah we we are not big we fluctuated I think since I've been there between about 25 people at the lowest and about 40 people at the highest and mm. as you say that is a good size you know people are in little teams of two three four people on a project and they get to be hands-on on that but then those things those little teams intercommunicate because we share one open plan office or we did at least until March um, so that everyone's aware of what everyone else is doing and the you know 
there is always a degree of commerciality to any project that we have in the office just by the nature someone is paying us money to give them something that will make them money. So it's great to have this balance of, you know, the very experienced hands at doing super efficient buildings. And, you know, you need a really tight core layout, then I know who to ask for a really good lift and stair core with all the risers where they need to be that fits into a super efficient block, you know. Um, but also if you need someone to have a really kind of slightly off the wall or philosophical design idea, we, we've got someone in there for that as well and we're able to put out things like just living which are intellectual pieces thought pieces and and don't necessarily have to consider wholly the the strictures of commerciality but our design projects obviously do otherwise there's no point in a client coming to us we could all design the most beautiful building in the world if we're not as aha hadid type who can then sell that building on the pure aesthetics and cost doesn't matter it's a zaha building how fantastic you know we're not in that position so it has to stack up uh, and that's something we're keenly aware of you know as a business and and we run our business internally so that every project has to stack up for for ourselves and how we manage it but we consistently deliver i'm not quite sure what we're doing differently to any other firm out there. I don't know if we are doing anything particularly differently, um, but we continue to secure good consents on, you know, quite punchy consents often on on tricky sites. And it's been a pleasure to work with Colonel Collins. When I joined them in 2015, I sort of said, look, I'm looking for a home for the next 10 to 15 years. And I didn't join as part, you mentioned, you know, I've, I've, I'm on the senior team, the sort of associate director level. We have weird titles in the company. But, um, you know, I joined as an architect and just through the five years of, of working hard and not particularly wanting to grind the greasy pole, I've, I've somehow ended up where I am. And yes, you know, running this sector in the practice with, you know, Nuria, who you kindly helped me find last summer, who is fantastic. Uh, and, you know, we brought in a couple of people internally now. So there's four or five people under my direct control working on, at the moment, three live projects and four feasibilities in the sector for, for different clients. And it's great. But mm. as I said before, whether in 10 years time I want to be doing that or whether something else is on the horizon, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, Collado Collins also published prior to the, the yellow book, Just Living, we also published a residential design guide for London. Now that was a guide Amazing. and that actually was an internal document where we realized that, you know, we were doing a lot of work in the GLA's remit and reproducing a lot of the same things on different sites and needed to capture all the various pieces of legislation into one place just for our internal purposes so that we had our own guide. You're doing a resi building in London, what do you need? And we got advice and subsections of the book are written by DP9 as planning consultants and Twin and Earth as energy mm. consultants um, and a couple of others and apologies to them for not remembering it. Um, I proofread the book, but I didn't write it. That we actually published as a book, and that is now sitting on the desks of planning officers, GLA officers, and they use it as a as a handy guide. That's, I think, another example of of what we try and do, which is balance our kind of commercial and design roles with thought leadership and and with demonstration of a real understanding of the constraints of development um, and the opportunities as well. So it's that balance of of thinking and doing that really seems to work for us as a practice and we've got a good balance of people in that frame it, it means you know it makes your job harder Stephen in that then when we need to slot people into that that milieu um, 
we have to be very specific. I do a lot of the recruitment, and I have to admit, going back to our earlier conversation, when I look at a CV, the two main things I look at are how long someone has been in the same place and what sort of size of place they've been in. And between those two mm-hmm. things, you can tell a lot about what experience they might have and you know how they might approach commitment. I might not be put off by someone who's done a year here, a year there. I might be less inclined to talk to someone who's done four months here and six months there and, and mm. whatever, because we're all, I think, as architects, trying to find the right place to balance our skill set and our desire to express ourselves in the form of architecture. No, it's, it, it makes complete sense. And it, it, I do enjoy the brief. I think whenever, for instance, working with Clara Collins, I, it, you do have to be conscious of the right kind of person because I almost feel that it almost bleeds into that family feel. Mm. You all kind of work together. You all look out for each other, but it's important to get the right person mm. and the right tempo so that everything goes ahead. And it's fantastic that Nuria is doing so well, but I think that's testament to you and her as well. So look, there's so many, I think this has been a really great introduction. We covered so much. You <laughs> dealt with my, my myriad of questions at the start so well. Well done. I'll work on that. Well, Sorry. I'm, ne- I'm no, new no, at the no. podcasting thing, but, uh, but what I think we covered so much grounds and, and what I'd like to say here is that for anyone who wants to reach out to you there's a few things as well isn't it so i'm going to post links to everything mm-hmm. you can find you on linkedin you're on collider collins's website um i can put contact details there you can be contacted if anyone's interested in learning more about the sector or any collaboration they can reach out mm. on your email they can call up there as well if anyone's interested in working in this sector as well while maybe there's not a role right now or anything you always interested in people who are interested in the sector i imagine yeah and as well as that as well we can highlight the projects you've done and for instance out there in the wider architecture spectrum and i know we're connected with a lot of developers and so forth you're always interested in talking about opportunities there and we have the publisher guides that people can look at so Mm. for instance you can get in touch so what's your email uh dominic and i'll put a link as well so my email is my first initial surname, so d.haley, that's H-A-I-L-E-Y, at colladocollins.com. Um, and then obviously the website is colladocollins.com. Uh, I am Brilliant. on there. In terms of projects that are on there, um, you know, we have a couple probably for this sector. And just, you know, hot news, breaking news, Stephen, just on the 5th of November, Ooh. so just over a week ago, we secured consent for another uh, later living project in Berkhamstead in the borough hey. of Decorum. Beautiful six pavilion green and black brick scheme. And, you know, that's with a client who intends to start detailed design in January. So there's every possibility that come the start of next year, I will be on the lookout for someone that has an interest in the sector, that has a bit of delivery experience, maybe doesn't have to have countless years of delivery experience but wants to get involved and learn and work with a very hands-on client who's very interested in delivering out quality design detailing which is what we built into the planning application in terms of the the just living book um, there's a slightly strange arrangement for downloading it so um, rather than a direct link on our website if you email just living j-u-s-t-l-i-v-i-n-g at collidocollins.com that comes through to me by another channel and then I can circulate a link to download the book separately from a file sharing website. It's complicated. There are reasons why it's complicated. We might uncomplicate it soon, but at the moment that's the best way to do it. (laughs) 
Brilliant. That's amazing and fantastic. Who knows? Should I be working on the role and for the right person, we'll be sending them this podcast and we can test them, can't we? I'll, I'll, I'll look at the metrics and see if they listen to it and then we know, Dom, if we invite them for an interview. Check those but CVs look, for small practice, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I think, um, look, this has been wonderful. And maybe what we can do down the line is we can do a little um, show and tell on an upcoming project. Be glad to. And hopefully I've given coherent answers to some of your incoherent questions. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm like. I've got to keep everyone on the toes, right? You kept the conversation going, Stephen. And hopefully for the listeners, that's been interesting enough. (laughs) Hopefully. I'll soon tell you with the metrics. We need to go again. It's a disaster. No, I'm sure it, I'm sure it won't be. Thank you so much, Dominic. And for anyone listening, all the links will be there. I've really enjoyed this. And uh, everyone who's listening, have a good morning. Have a good mm. evening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. And, and the same to everybody. Enjoy yourselves and live while you can. Brilliant. Thank you, Dom. Bye.